We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the Sunday debate, we're asking, should the West send fighter jets to Ukraine? As the war in Ukraine reaches its one-year anniversary, there is still no clear end in sight. And while Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky anticipates Russia's spring offensive, he's been clear in asking the West for one thing, fighter jets. On this episode of the podcast, defence expert Rajan Menon and policy expert Anatol Levin discuss how crucial jets could be for Ukraine's defence, as well as what the Western country's national interest is in giving them, and whether support for Ukraine in this war could wane as time goes on. Our host for this episode is the Sunday Times special correspondent, Josh Bancy. Here's Josh with more. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, the 21st of February. And I have my trusty copy of the Daily Telegraph here with me. And the splash headline is Send Jets to Ukraine, Truss and Johnson Tell PM. So this debate couldn't really be more live because it comes the day after we saw US President Joe Biden on a surprise visit to Ukraine, promising unwavering support for the Ukrainians as we reach the one year anniversary of their war with Russia. Uh, And it comes just weeks after the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, was in London and Paris, and he was asking European leaders for jets. This is the weapon he wants right now. It's it's the weapon, he says, will allow Ukraine to deliver on its war aims and defeat Russia. Today on the podcast, we're going to be asking, should the West send fighter jets to Ukraine? Uh, And how would, if they did send the jets, how would these jets shape the next phase of the war? Is this a good idea? And I think towards the end of the podcast, we'll probably try and get into a broader question of what is the goal here? What is the end game? Is there an end game? And and how might Jets play into that, if at all? So to explore these very live issues, I'm joined by Rajan Menon, Director of the Grand Strategy Programme at Defence Priorities, and Anatole Levin, Senior Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. So we have two very astute observers of this war with us. Um, I guess I'd start by asking both of you, Maybe we'll start with you, Anatole. Why, why have the jets suddenly become the weapon of the moment? So we, we have had seen similar demands from Ukraine around HIMARS, long-range missile systems, around Leopard tanks. And that there's almost these kind of media campaigns with Zelensky out front pushing you know, the, the new weapon of the moment. Now it's jets. I mean, admittedly, they've been asking for jets for a long time, but that's the real focus now. Why is that? Well, I mean, they've, they've got everything else, right? Um, everything else has been given to them. Uh, you know, every previous barrier on heavy weaponry uh, for Ukraine has sooner or later been broken. So obviously they're going to, you know, ask next for jets. What else is there to ask for? 
the point is, though, that uh, you know at every stage there have been warnings uh, about the dangers of you know Russia responding by some uh, radical escal- escalation. Now, of course, this hasn't happened yet. I mean, as far as escalation against the West is concerned, uh, but you know, the, the, the question remains. I mean, will Russia respond by widening the war? I mean, the other question relating not just to the jets, but as you've suggested, to um, Western uh, arms supplies and support for Ukraine in general, uh, is what is the political strategy here? I mean, what is our goal? And uh, is this the same as that of the Ukrainians, uh, who are saying that they um, want to uh, recover all the territory that they have lost since 2014, including Crimea? And the Eastern Donbass, uh, or in fact, would we be content with um, simply uh, the the Russians leaving or be, being driven out of everything that they've taken since February of last year? And if you look at recent statements by members of the Biden administration, uh, it's clear that not merely among European governments, but within the U.S. administration, uh, there are some serious differences over that. I suppose in part precisely because of those differences, uh, we have not been able to uh, craft a, a united strategy, which of course uh, opens the possibility that if the Ukrainians can win and make a breakthrough, that they might go for their maximal uh, goal. And if they stand a good chance of doing that, then I think um, Russian escalation is not just possible, but extremely probable. Okay, so lots of big questions there. Before we get into answering some of them, Rajan, I wonder if you could just talk us through a little bit about the sort of technicalities here. So what jets are we talking about? How many roughly might we be talking about? And what kind of difference might they make? What's the Ukrainian case uh, for for receiving these jets, for the the difference it might make on the battlefield uh, in the coming months? Thanks very much, Josh. It's a pleasure to join you and Anatole. So let me approach this in somewhat professorial fashion. It's a habit I can't shake. If you look at this crisis, as a, this war is a triangle, Kiev, Washington, and Moscow, what is clear from Zelensky's statement of late, Biden's visit to Kiev, and Putin's two-hour speech of today, and I think we can all agree on this, is that there is no end to the war in sight. Both sides think they can win. We can say they're foolish to think so, but they do think so. And Ukraine has been buoyed, shall we say, by fulsome support, of verbal, but as Anatole pointed out, also substantially material. It is a different army than the one that existed in 2014. Now, why the combat jets? And I'll get to the question of which ones in a moment. The greatest weakness that the Ukrainians have faced is the inability to reach far beyond Russian lines and to take out command posts, logistical systems, and ammunition and fuel uh, depots. That is a great Russian vulnerability that we've seen since the beginning of the war because the Russian army relative to other armies is much more rail dependent for its logistics, and the logistical system has been the Achilles heel. Now, in order to equip the Ukrainians to do that, there's been already a lot given. So we've heard about the HIMARS, but we haven't heard much about something called GLMRS, a guided multiple rocket launch system, which is a laser-guided, satellite-guided system, uh, the M270. Then a whole series of howitzers, the French Caesar, the Susanna, 
Slovak made, but bought by Germany and Denmark and Norway. And then the M77, which is 777, which is British. So if you are in this for the long haul and you want to add to the capability that these artillery systems and multiple launch rocket systems give, the next logical bridge you're going to face crossing is combat aircraft. Now, which ones? Well, the Ukrainians would like the F-16. One can argue whether it is the best aircraft out there, but what is most important is that it has an American signature on this. It makes the United States become much more deeply involved in the war, and that is absolutely important to the Ukrainians, because apart from the Poles and the Balts and the British, they don't trust anybody else in Europe. That's that's fairly clear. The other jets are that have been mentioned are the Eurofighter, which is a combined built aircraft in, in Europe, and the uh, Swedish Gripen, G-R-I-P-E-N. Whether any of these will be supplied, I don't know. But to come back to what Anatole has said, we have thought that certain weapons wouldn't be supplied all along, only to see the Rubicon cross not once once, but multiple times. So I will say this is on the agenda. Now, is it escalatory? And here, Anatole and I may have a different idea. First of all, I've never heard a discussion to date about escalation that has reminded me of anything other than a dog chasing its tail. So lots of energy expended and heat generated, but little productive result. Now, why is that? It's because we put ourselves in the position of Putin and we say, if the U.S. does this, what might he do, assuming that he's a rational person? If the U.S. does something else, what he what might he do? And at what point might he escalate? And what kind of escalation could it be? Horizontal, that is moving the war into NATO territory, or vertical, using tactical nuclear weapons and then creating a conflict spiral. These discussions get nowhere because the evidence needed to document what Putin is thinking or telling his close associates, if anything, is never present. So you have a wide range of assessments about the escalation potential. So the Biden administration has, to use an American expression, try to thread the needle, to try to go between escalation on the one hand and equipping Ukraine as much as possible. And so far, it's managed to do that. So I would say, because it's managed to do that, and because it's in for a long war, and because it's put its imprimatur on this war, the combat aircraft supply cannot be dismissed. I'm not in the business of prophecy, but I would say it cannot be dismissed. Can I just add one thing to that? Uh, of course, the, the other question is, um, I mean, such aircraft would be in a position to strike into Russia itself, something that the Ukrainians have so far done only on a, a, a limited scale. Uh, but clearly, I mean, it, they're, I should say, I mean, they're completely within their rights to do that. But whether that would you know, be a good idea is... Another question. This is a very important question that Anatole has put on the table, because the United States has said, we are not going to give you, notwithstanding the fact that you have been attacked, we are not going to give you the weaponry needed to strike back into the homeland of your adversary. It's a curious kind of war that way. So again, it goes back to threading the needle. So to that end, we haven't given them the attackums missile that they have been trying to lobby for for a long time the Army's tactical missile system. It's about 200 miles, about four times the length of a, I'm sorry, the um, range of a typical howitzer. We haven't given them the MQ-1C Gray Eagle. 
we haven't given them the F-16. So I think that if the F-16 or any other jet is given, it will be given with the proviso that it cannot under any circumstances, no matter what the provocation, be used to hit the Russian homeland. Now, you might say, well, Ukraine might just disregard that. But I think that's unlikely because once you're given a weapon system and you break the contract, as it were, then you put yourself in jeopardy. So they have to be mindful of that as well. This is not an argument for supplying these aircraft or not supplying them. But I think they will come with strings attached if they are supplied. And so, Anatole, just before we get on to some of the the bigger questions about where this war might be going and and what role jets could play in that... um, would they actually make a difference? So they've been dismissed in some quarters uh, as a very expensive gesture, and that actually the amount of training required to get them functional, the, the length of runways you would need, uh, and the kind of infrastructure you need to, to, to run an F-16 jet is, is huge. And the Ukrainians, right now at least, don't necessarily have it. So uh, what? how much difference could it make in the air war at the moment, g- given those limitations? Well, at the moment, very little. And in the short term, obviously. Uh, but if, as Rajan has suggested, and if, as seems extremely likely, this is going to be a, a long war, then obviously over time, the Ukrainians can be trained and can adapt their infrastructure to use these weapons. Mm. And staying with you for a second, Anatole, I mean, what's what's the situation in the air war currently? Russia has a much bigger air force, as I understand it, but, but doesn't have total air supremacy or, or does? Or, and, and how does that affect... Because we're, we're expecting some form of spring offensive, we are told. We don't know exactly what. How does the current situation in the air affect how, how the war's playing out? Well, one of the, the biggest surprises of this war, from a military point of view, uh, has been how very ineffective Russian air superiority has been um, and how little use they've made of it. And there are a whole set of reasons for this. Um, the effectiveness of uh, Ukrainian anti-aircraft missiles, both uh, Soviet-era ones and Stingers supplied by uh, America, uh, which have done terrible damage to Russian attack helicopters um, and ground attack helicopters, uh, and apparently led to serious demoralization uh, on the Russian side. Um, And uh, poor coordination uh, between, this is a long-standing problem, uh, between uh, the uh, Russian Air Force and the Russian ground forces, uh, which have made effective cooperation much more difficult. Uh, But the answer is that so far, this has been a war waged by Russia, at least in recent months, chiefly by missiles. Now, it's been suggested that Russia has been regrouping and that in a future offensive, it will once again use its air power much more heavily. Well, we have to see. But I think these jets, if given, would certainly not make a difference to uh, any, any fighting this spring. And, um, you know, Rajan, why don't we just give them the jets? I mean, that's what, that's what Boris Johnson and Liz Truss think. And we don't necessarily have to agree with everything they think. But hasn't this war in some level been a story of the West ultimately giving the Ukrainians the weapons they need, but sometimes not quickly enough uh, or in enough quantity to really make a difference, you know, as quickly as they might like? If we're going to end up giving them the jets, why don't we just get on with it? Why don't we get on with it has two answers. First, there is a debate within the Biden administration, it's not a monolith, about just how far the boundary can be pushed before risking escalation. When I said nobody knows what escalation really means and when it'll occur, I didn't mean to dismiss it. It's obviously on the table. So there's a question of what 
each weapon system will do in terms of evoking a Russian reaction that we don't want, vertical escalation or horizontal escalation, then it can't be a unilateral US decision. Well, it could be, but anything that the United States does perforce affects NATO. And so in NATO, you have the United States plus 29 other countries, and there has to be a consultation about that. And there's the question of, should it be the F-16 and should it not be the Eurofighter or the Gripen? One other point, Josh, that we need to bear in mind, there's another reason that's pushing them toward the aircraft decision. So they've provided now several batches of tanks, or they're on the way, the Leopard, the Challenger 2, uh, one day, the American Abrams, perhaps. The numbers vary, but 42 have been promised now, but I expect the number to be about 100. But they've provided also 150 or so, maybe 200 uh, armored personnel carriers. Now, these are very important systems, but if you need to give them the maximum protection and effectiveness, you need air support. Without that, they are extremely vulnerable. So if you provide a lot of armor in the form of APCs, armored personnel carriers, and uh, tanks, and you leave them open to Russian fire from the air or from the ground, then you haven't done yourself much good. And so that's another reason that this is, uh, this is I think, moving toward a, a decision point. But can I, can I just add something there? Because a key question here, or what ought to be a key question is, uh, what is the national interest of Britain, since you've you know, just quoted two British ex-prime ministers, uh, or of the United States, or of their peoples in this? Do the advantages of giving such weapons to Ukraine, giving unconditional backing to Ukraine, outweigh the risks to us. And, you know, some arguments have been raised uh, over this, some of them, frankly, uh, completely fanciful, uh, such as that, you know, if, uh, if Russia isn't completely defeated in Ukraine, it will regroup and go on to threaten NATO. Well, given the performance of the Russian military so far, I mean, that is simply a fantasy. They're clearly incapable of doing that. Um, and then you get into some rather abstruse arguments, you know, about uh, the so-called rules-based order, uh, which uh, are, you know, widely believed in the West, but are not, as I'm sure Rajan would agree, uh, necessarily shared elsewhere in the world, because frankly, they see very little or much less difference between Russian and American behavior when it comes to violations of international law. So the question emerges, uh, what is the interest, I speak here as a British citizen, but working now in America, um, you know, what are the interests of our peoples and our nations here? Uh, these are, are, after all, weapon systems that have been paid for by our taxpayers. And we are you know, engaging in efforts which could lead to considerable dangers. I mean, even in the worst case, apocalyptic dangers for them. And that, I think, is, you know, is something which has never really been fully explored by our political classes. Well, Anatole, you've raised the question, so I'll ask, I'll ask for an answer. I mean, you're, you're, you're a British citizen. Um, put yourself in the minds of the British government and the British people. What do you think? What do you think our national interest is, is here? Well, I certainly think that uh, we had an interest um, and indeed an obligation 
uh, to help Ukraine defend itself uh, against Russian invasion at the start and to prevent Putin from conquering the whole of Ukraine, as seemed was his goal at the beginning and seemed possible. Uh, but I think we need to recognize that uh, in recent months, um, this is no longer an existential battle for Ukraine. It has been turned by Ukrainian victories with our uh, weapons uh, into a sort of grim, attritional struggle uh, for limited amounts of territory in eastern and southern Ukraine. And whether you know, either our national interests or our moral interests are engaged in total victory for Ukraine over limited amounts of territory is, for me, a very different issue from the one at the beginning of the war, which was the, the defense of Ukrainian uh, independence and the defeat of a war of aggression. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Rajan, you, you've, you've alluded a couple of times to, to the Biden administration, which, as you say, is not a monolith on this. There are different perspectives. I find the character of the central character of Joe Biden fascinating in this. I think a lot of people feel that Joe Biden has had, quote unquote, a, a good war so far. And we saw him uh, a very remarkable gesture. He spent 20 hours on a train to get to Ukraine yesterday and give one of his trademark hugs to President Zelensky. Uh, there were air raid sirens going off in the background. I don't know if they, they, they were just to make a point or if there was actual <laughs> air raid threatened. But Joe Biden is a fascinating figure here. I mean, he's said throughout his North Star in this war is no war with Russia. And I think we can credit him for keeping to that thus far. Is Biden's caution a key factor here when we're talking about jets and we're talking about further 
American supply for Ukraine? Or is he worried about the Republicans in Congress now uh, having control of the House? Or is he, you know, is he is he thinking about his reelection in 24? How do you view the, the figure of Joe Biden in all of this? The first thing to keep in mind about Joe Biden, going back to his days in the Senate, is that he has always seen himself as a foreign policy expert. He's keenly interested in international politics. And so unlike other presidents who will lean more heavily on their advisors, Biden, while he listens to his advisors, very much has his own mind. Now, what are his interests? It is to support Ukraine to get the best result it can to create a negotiated settlement, and I'll come to that in a second, with the lowest amount of cost for the United States, costs of two kind. One is the risk of confrontation with Russia. So he has said over and over and over again, US troops will not participate in this war, which raises the interesting question. Some have discussed the security guarantee by several countries, including the United States, after the end of this war. Now, if the U.S. is already saying under no circumstances will it fight Russia and Ukraine, what would be the use of that security guarantee? That's a separate issue. He's been able to do this, Josh, because so far, this is a good war in the sense that people feel there's a clear aggressor and an aggressed against here. It also hasn't cost the United States anything, right? The Vietnam War didn't become an issue in this country until Johnny and Susie started to be drafted, and the war sort of seep into the pores of American society. So far, it hasn't, it hasn't demanded anything at all. There's talk about weapons, stocks getting low and so on, but the average person on Main Street in Missouri is not going to worry about that kind of thing. And so Biden wants to keep that within limits. As for his re-election campaign, well, I, I, I think that he will, whether he likes it or not, when a biography is written of him 10 years hence, there will be a big chapter on this war. And he knows that he will be in some sense evaluated historically by how he conducts this war. Whether it's going to be a major issue in the campaign, my sense is that most Americans are consumed increasingly because of mounting problems in this country, the bread and butter issues. I think Ukraine will matter in some respects. Now, the Republican Party, so far, the McConnellites, if you will, the international wing of the Republican Party, has driven the party's thinking on Ukraine and the MAGA nationalist groups that have been critical of it haven't really had much of a voice. But if the war drags on, right, and the costs increase, so we've spent about 50, 60 billion dollars on Ukraine, civilian and military aid, that's about more than half of Russia's defense budget in 2021. So a million, a billion here, a billion there, if the war goes on for two more years, the cost could rise, then we could be in a different situation. So on the one hand, there's a desire to wind up this war as quickly as possible with a result that Ukraine can live with, but to do so at uh, an acceptable risk. And the two are not necessarily in alignment, those two goals. So I'm going to ask you one question each here in terms of best and worst case scenario on the Jets. So maybe we'll start with worst case scenario, get the bad news out of the way. Anatole, if we did give Jets to Ukraine uh, in the coming months, um, what are the real, what are the worst risks in terms of escalation? Is it Ukraine striking into Russia and then some sort of retaliation um, that escalates the war? What, what do you, re- what keeps you up at night here? Well, it's not so much specifically the Jets, it's how this will be read 
uh, in Moscow because, uh, of course, Rajan has said quite quite rightly that the that Biden and at least important parts of his administration, uh, you know, are, are anxious to to maintain a um, you know a, a limited policy to some extent. But of course, that's not necessarily how it's seen in um, in Moscow. I mean, just as uh, you know, we have uh, uh, over time, you know, regularly um, misinterpreted, you know, what what Russia has been doing over the years. Uh, so, I mean, the Russians uh, have got themselves into a mood of extreme paranoia uh, about us, and uh, a great many of them. I mean, not just Putin are now convinced that it is the policy of the West as a whole, not just completely to defeat Russia in Ukraine, but actually to destroy and break up the Russian Federation. Uh, so clearly, I mean, the more uh, aid of this kind that the West gives, the more these fears will go up. But the critical issue will not, certainly not in the next few months, be the the jets as such. It is who can prevail on the battlefield. And if it's the Ukrainians, which I think is on balance unlikely, but is possible, uh, if faced with the, the prospect of complete defeat in Ukraine, how would the Russians react? But as, as I say, I mean, I, I don't think in the next months the jets will make a critical difference to that. But in a, in a longer war, yes. And I think on balance, the most likely scenario for this year uh, is a continuation of you, you know, a war of attrition along roughly present lines. But for the further future, of course, who knows? I mean, we've been surprised by military development so often uh, over the past year. Um, and I think it's quite possible we will be surprised again in the future. I just hope we're not su- surprised in a very nasty way. No, I think there's a few analysts can come out of this with a 100% record at this point. Um, Rajan, say we do go ahead with jets, uh, and, and that is, a, you know, another step up in terms of Western support for Ukraine. What's the best outcome uh, over the next few months uh, and and beyond? And maybe not just with the jets. What, what do you think the best case scenario is for the West in terms of what what can unfold in Ukraine? Well, I agree with Anatole that for the next six months we are going to see more of the same—a war of attrition, with each side nibbling at what is now about a six hundred mile or nine hundred mile front line with the Ukrainians having a big advantage because they have interior means of communication. Even if you took the decision today to provide, say, the F-16s, to train a pilot would take a minimum of six months, a minimum. And then there's the whole support structure of personnel that are needed for that jet. So we're talking about the autumn at best before these jets make a difference. Now, what is the best case scenario for Ukraine? It is to get them. For the United States, it is to give them, but not have them used against Russian territory. For the Russians, of course, it is to make threats that ensure that the jets are not given. I'm not in a position, Josh, to tell you whether they'll be given or not, except to game out what happens if they're given and what happens if they're not given. But I think we come back to the point that Anatole started with. There were many. There have been many surprises about this war, which is why when anyone asks me to predict anything, I, I don't, right? Because we, if we had had this conversation two years ago and we said there'd be a war between Russia and Ukraine and NATO would be involved in hammer and tongue, you know, we would have called for someone with the white coats to come and take us away to the psychiatric institution. Here we are. So far be it for me to say that aircraft are ruled out, but it would be a very significant step and taken with a great deal of thought by the Biden people. They're not oblivious 
to escalation. So one thing that's emerged from both of you very clearly in this conversation uh, is that we are in this for a while. Uh, well, I say we, I mean, the Ukrainians and the Russians, but we as, as interested observers, um, will we sustain our support? Uh, it's actually, it support has held up pretty well in the last year. Um, fuel prices have gone up, inflation's gone up, the effects of the war have been felt by Western publics, but support has remained robust. The transatlantic alliance, such as it is, has remained pretty robust behind Ukraine. But if we're talking another year, another three years, who knows, Anatole, will cracks start to show, do you think? Well, I mean, the Biden administration has warned the Ukrainian government that, you know, in the longer term, this level of support cannot be guaranteed. And Rajan has mentioned, you know, questions now being raised by um, one wing of the Republican Party uh, about this this level of support. I, I think that if economic hardship grows in Europe, you will see more pressure for uh, attempts to negotiate uh, at least a, a ceasefire. Um, but, uh, it, of course, it will also depend on what happens on the battlefield. I mean, it will depend critically on what happens on, on the battlefield, because if you see a situation in which for months and then years, uh, the front lines hardly shift amidst enormous casualties on both sides, uh, you will undoubtedly see a rise in feeling you know, in the West that, you know, is it really worth continuing this? Uh, but of course, um, you will. You may also see a rise in that feeling in in both Ukraine uh, and Russia. The other, you know, question is, of course, if there is a limited breakthrough by one side or another, could the Russians uh, offer a unilateral ceasefire and peace talks without preconditions, or if the Ukrainians can regain most of what they've lost since last February? Would Washington then step in to say, okay, now, you know, you've got most of it back, now's time to talk? I mean, that's that's hypothetical. But I think, um, look, I mean, at some stage, I mean, assuming this doesn't escalate towards nuclear annihilation, but at some stage in the years to come, if only from mutual exhaustion, I think we will move towards a, a, towards a, a more or less unstable ceasefire. So nearing the end of our conversation, Rajan, I, I, well, I'd like to ask both of you, but Rajan first, what do you see as, as the desire, your emperor of, uh, I, I elect you president for the day, what's your desired endgame here? Um, must Russia lose? And does that involve Crimea and the Donbass, you know, some of the 2014 territory that was taken as well? Or do you see just a sort of stable ceasefire as, as the best most realistic outcome here? What, what, what would you aim for as president? Well, I'll, I'll refrain from telling my wife and daughters that you've appointed me president because you've a very quick phone call from <laughs> them with appropriate horror. But the problem, Josh, is, is this. For Ukraine, an armistice today would be to accept the partition of their country. So they can't do that. And Zelensky has time and again said, we want everything back. First, it excluded Crimea. Now it's the whole shebang and partly the degree of Western support. Putin has also put himself in a bind because he conducted this referendum in four Ukrainian provinces, even though a couple of them they didn't control fully. And then with a signing ceremony, appropriate legislation, he annexed them to the Russian Federation 
and in today's speech refer to them as our land. Now, this means that a territorial compromise won't be just giving back territory that Russia has conquered in Ukraine. It'll be giving back territory of the Russian Federation, which sits uneasily, shall we say, with Putin's effort to project himself as his uncompromising nationalist and defender of Russia's honor and so on. So I don't see a settlement. I think Anatole is right that the longer the war goes on, the greater the likelihood of economic ramifications here and a stalemate. That will change the discussion here. But what will really change the discussion here is the following. The Ukrainians are also in a bind. The more weapons they get, assuming they get the high-performance jets, they will be obligated to show at regular intervals significant progress so that the West is assured that we're backing a horse that will win the race, as it were. If that proves not to be the case, that the Russians begin to roll the Ukrainians back, which I rather doubt, but the Ukrainians don't push forward to a degree that we want, then I think the question will be asked, is it time to wind down the war? But we're not at that point yet. We could be in a year. So, Rajan, yes or no, Jets? Um, well, I'm not going to make recommendations of the American government. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just an American citizen. I will say that I think the likelihood is not inconsiderable. Um, okay, so Anatole, to finish with you, you're, you've been promoted today as Secretary General of NATO. Ben Wallace is not getting the job yet. Um, what's your goal? You know, what, what do you think is the most realistic uh, and desirous outcome here from from the perspective of the Western Alliance? Well, I think, unfortunately, realistic and desirable are, are two different things in this case. Um, I think realistic is pretty much what, what Rajan has said. It's extremely hard uh, to imagine a full-scale peace settlement, given the difference between the two sides. Uh, but uh, a ceasefire without a peace settlement um, as we've seen in Korea, in Kashmir, in Cyprus, I think is you know is is the most likely outcome. And I think just on that score, two points to be made. One, the obvious one, um, that uh, you know an end to fighting in which possibly hundreds of thousands of people have been killed uh, is in itself desirable. A second point is that you know Ukraine now has for the first time, sufficient sympathy, perhaps actually to move towards membership of the European Union over time. But it cannot begin to do that as long as the fighting goes on. Um, And of course, also, the longer the fighting goes on, the greater the destruction to the Ukrainian economy. The final point uh, is that I think we need to recognise that, you know, given what Russian aims were a year ago, and given, you know, what the vast majority of observers expected, And given the history of the past 300 years, Ukraine has already a great victory. I mean, almost whatever happens, because a complete Russian victory is simply unimaginable for me, at least now, um, the great majority of Ukraine will be independent of Russia and will be aligned with the West. And that is something that the Ukrainians, you know, with our support, have already achieved. And that is a, a very great victory, which does you know, raise the question of whether it is truly necessary uh, for Ukraine or for us to to go on, you know, beyond that victory to total victory over Russia. It's certainly the case if if we'd been speaking a year ago today, I I don't think many of us would have really expected Ukraine to be where it is now. So uh, to finish, Anatole, yes or no to Jets as as your Secretary General? 
Not at the moment, no. Not at the moment, no. Um, well, you know, it's somber discussion in a way because it, it does feel like we're maybe set up for a, a generational war um, and we have to steal ourselves for that. Um, but that fascinating and, and very wide-ranging and nuanced. So I'd like to thank you both for joining us here, um, Anatole and Rajan. Thank you. Uh, that was Anatole Levin and Rajan Menon. Uh, you've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I've been Josh Clancy, still am. And this episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. And thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.